0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco, and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the Lion's Den, and I have Brandon Wells, the cigar mechanic. He is in town, and I am super excited to have you around, my man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it.
1: First question, what you smoking? Right now, I'm smoking the Casa Cuevas, Connecticut, from the Core line, Um, in the Toro size. Because you
0: are a rep, and you travel around and you sell cigars to various
1: shops. Yeah, Casa Cuevas is one of your one of your main brands, isn't it? Yeah, well, Casa Cuevas was one of the first brands to give me an opportunity. So what I'm actually considered is a broker, okay, which is slightly different than a rep. A rep works directly with a company, is employed by that company. They pay all their expenses. I'm a broker, which means I own the company and I partner with multiple brands. And so I get to represent multiple brands. What are the brands that you represent? Oh, I agree currently. when this question comes up, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, I have, so obviously Casa Cuevas, yeah. uh, 1502. with um, We have Patina, Espinosa, uh, y Picario, which congratulations, Cigar of the Year for that, with Cigar Aficionado. Nice. We have Sereno and APS. Uh, I have Gran Habano. I have Cohimar flavored cigars and uh, Lotus accessories, Lotus and Vertigo. So all your cutters and lighters and all that fun stuff. All right. Where'd you grow up, Brandon? So I grew up in Glendora, California, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. We born and ra- I was born in San Dimas Hospital and raised in Glendora and until I was, uh, shoot, 16 years old. And I was sent off to uh, Samoa to live for a couple of years. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, let's just say I wasn't uh, the best of kids. I was a street pharmacist at the time. And, um, I was just an angry, angry child. Um, I was a child that needed a lot of attention and just didn't get it. So the way that I would try to get that attention was just through being angry. And at one point, I think the kind of straw that broke the camel's back was, was, uh, I was in an argument with my mother and, uh, I was a boy scout and I had a wall full of hatchets and I took one off and swung it at her. And, uh, I think they kind of, at that point said we don't know what to do with this kid anymore. And, uh, So there's a program called, well, the school part of it was Browning Academy, but it was Paradise Cove is the name of the school. And it was a school for troubled teens. So most of the people that were there, most of the kids that were there were court ordered to be there. Um, I never got caught, so I don't have any record, but uh, it was basically we either have you arrested and sent there or you can go on your own. Yeah. Um, So I said, okay, well, I'll go. Um, Started off in Utah in uh, like a rehab facility which I didn't need, I wasn't addicted to any drugs at the time, um, but uh, you had to literally ask permission to, to fart, or to cross a doorway, or anything. You had to ask permission to do everything. So it was preparing you for the island. And then uh, we went out to the island, and it was, uh, we went through a couple of different seminars, uh, teen help seminars, and then actually, I was, as I was there, I got to help develop a couple more for the program, and um, just live life and learn how to learn how to be a man. Was it a benefit? huge benefit that absolutely changed me a hundred percent um you know looking back i realize as a parent now myself um you know i I understand that our children are a reflection of us Um, so it's not that i had a bad egg or my parents had a bad egg it was you know obviously they had their issues that and what i call generational sin that was being passed on to me um, as a child in the upbringing So I learned a lot about that. I learned a lot of responsibility. I learned a lot of um, accountability was one of the biggest things that I learned while I was there. Mm. And just how to look at every situation in life. Uh, Even if you get rear-ended by somebody, most people say, well, that wasn't my fault. Well, what's your accountability in that situation still? You still have a role in every single situation in your own life. And it may not be your fault, but accountability is not about finding fault. It's about finding your role and how to... Adjust that role in the future so you don't make the same mistakes.
0: Hmm.
1: Was there any kind of faith foundation to that program? There was really very little. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting program uh, because there was, you know, it was kind of a last ditch for people. Um, there's a lot of people that have tried to sue the program now, it's no longer in service. But, you know, I think it was necessary. And, and actually, there's a Facebook group that these guys are just really angry towards the program. And I'm always in there saying, you guys are alive today because of this. Yeah. How can you be angry at something that has saved your life mm-hmm. and has, has changed and, and extended your life? And, you know, but they tend to look at the... The negatives. Yeah, the negative aspects of everything and, and neglect to see just how impactful it is in their life. The fact that they're alive today because of it. What kind of home did you grow up in? My home was an interesting one. Um, we grew up in the Christian family. We went to church every single Sunday. Um, it's what I call a white picket with a white picket fence, Christian, your typical Christian, you know, the church going and we looked great on the surface. Um, we had the beautiful home in Glendora and my dad's a financial planner, Okay, but, uh, I don't know. It was, uh, you know, I didn't realize until I was older, but my dad was really, you know, focused on work. Um, mm-hmm. that was his hundred percent focus. And I don't know that he really even wanted children to be honest with you. And so it was just whenever he was around, it was he was watching TV and popcorn and, you know, had to beg for that time. Mm. My mom was the disciplinarian, um, the punisher. And my dad was the guy that just kind of came along as the soft voice every once in a while. Kind of what I call dumb and happy. Not that my dad's dumb, but it was just that dumb and happy outlook, you know. <laughs> but um, how many yeah, siblings? One brother. OK. Yeah, I have one older, older brother. Younger. Older brother. Yeah, 18 months older than me. And uh, uh, he's an interesting character these days. So he's into the whole Scientology. And uh, we haven't spoken probably, shoot, it's probably 16 years now that we haven't even talked. Hmm. Yeah. But, you know, you can't choose who your siblings are, but you can choose who your brothers are. And <laughs> so um, when I found that he was, and that's, this is the biggest thing I learned from the program and the school I was in in Samoa was coming home it was interesting because my mom was one, she would almost seem like she would pick the fight with me so that she could be the good one mm-hmm. um, and be the hero because I was the one that overreacted. And I remember coming home and my mom was in my face uh, yelling at me about something. I couldn't even tell you what now. Pointing at me. And I remember looking at her saying, you're in my space. I need you to take three steps back and you can continue talking. And I had my hands behind my back, which was different than I would have been before. Yeah, And I calmly just said, you have you know, take three steps back and you can say whatever you want to say. So she took a step forward and I said, I'm giving you another chance. And I know she heard that as, Oh, he's about ready to pop. So she steps forward again. And I said, this is your last chance. I need you to take three steps back and you can continue speaking. And now at this point she takes one more step and she's almost touching my nose nose with her nose. Yeah. And, and yelling and pointing at me. And, uh, I remember keeping my calm and I reach around and I, I, you know, I'd been in Samoa carrying rice sacks full of sand and always, I had gained a lot of strength while I was there. You know, we lived off the land basically. And I reach around and I pin her elbows against her side and I pick her straight up off the ground. I set her on her bed and I literally counted backwards three steps. I said, One, two, three, you may speak. And I put my hands back behind my back, calm as day. Never assaulted her, I just removed her out of my space. And I just remember that moment just saying, I don't have to overreact. Ooh. I don't have to. How old were you? I was 19 at that time. Yeah. And I said, I just don't have to be this man anymore. That's not who I am. And that's not healthy. My mother and I, we, we've probably said six words to each other in the last 15, 16 years. Because she just maintained that manipulative attitude. Mm. And... Um, mm which again is fine, right? I can't choose who gave birth to me, but I can choose who my mother is and who I look up to as a mother figure, which has been my aunt. So, um, her sister, ironically. I remember that moment, it was kind of a turning point for us because I think my mom realized that she no longer had that control over me. That was a big turning point for our relationship Mm. growing up, so. what did you do after high school? Well, so I finished high school um, in Samoa. Yeah. Um, then when we came back, short, shortly after I was taking a short college course, my one glorious semester of college, just to see if I liked it, which I did not. And I met my now wife. Uh, she walked into one of my courses that we were in a recording arts class. And I remember her walking into the, to the room and I just saw her and I said, that's the woman I'm spending the rest of my life with. And I knew immediately. What was it? I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I couldn't tell you, I just, there was there was a an aura about her, and at this point in my life, I was away from God, I, I didn't really have, I wasn't angry at God at this point, but I, I wasn't there with him either, it just, he just wasn't a part of my life, um, I, I chose just to, it, it was me, right, I'm doing it, mm-hmm. so I couldn't say it was like a God thing at that moment, looking back, I know it is, right, I know God put her in my life, but there was just something, I said, that's the woman I'm spending the rest of my life with, and so I, I, she worked for a flower shop at the time, and this was February 9th that I met her. So Valentine's Day was coming up, so I figured I gotta get her phone number. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I know Valentine's come, is coming up, do you guys need help at the flower shop delivering flowers? And she's like, oh, actually we do it. I said, cool, let me get your phone number, I'll reach out to you and see if I can come help. Oh, smooth, Landed bro. the phone number, bro. Smooth. Got it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <And> that's smooth. <laughs> So, and I think it was a month later that I told her, um, that I said, you're the woman I'm spending the rest of my life with, which freaked her out, of course, but we just kind of just started dating and I don't even know that we even made an agreement that we were dating. Yeah. Um, but we just started dating and, um, she put up with my family, uh, cause when I came back from the school, we had a, a contract that we had to follow and uh, that we wrote with the family, which basically said, you know, if I was going to date somebody, they had to interview her and mm-hmm. this whole contract that, you know, for coming back into the world. Mm -hmm. So they did the whole 21 questions, deep personal questions, first time meeting her, which, you know, she's like, uh, no. She's pumping brakes, you know? (laughs) This is not what you do. But she's, for some reason, she stuck around with me. I found out later, and if she hears this podcast, she'll probably kill me for telling the story, but I found out later that, I think it was a year prior, she had written a letter to just the universe, the world. She believed in God, she's also Native American, so very spiritual. But she'd written a letter just to the world saying she wanted to meet somebody. And this person would be tall, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, she explained the personality, all of these traits of this person. And um, she wrote in there that she was going to meet this person on February 9th. And that was the day we met. <laughs> yeah, it's like an emotional thing for me, right? Because uh, yeah. here we are 22 years later. And she's the love of my life. And I didn't know at that point that, um, it's funny, she's calling me right now. I didn't know at that point um, that it was a God thing, but looking today, um, she's been a turning point for my life. What kind of home did she grow up in? She grew up in a rough home. She grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and her dad was a big drug dealer. He was the guy that, that you went to and you didn't buy like a dime bag, you bought, uh, you know, he bought by the bail basically. Um, the house behind her was a meth lab. Her mom was just very, very, and still is very, very passive. Um, her dad was just angry and did whatever he wanted, which is ironic that she married me and was attracted to me. Cause at that time I was very similar to her dad, minus the drugs. Um, I was a very selfish person like he was, mm-hmm. but she grew up playing football on the street with the guys. And so she could hold her own. She didn't choose to go down that road. She just knew that wasn't healthy and where she wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So she had to pick a different path. And she became very, very independent very quick. What were those early years like with her? It was interesting because we moved to Phoenix right away. And we started a trucking company. Um, she says now that I just, I, I Phoenix because I'm this California, LA suburb kid. You know, and then I get to Phoenix and I'm like, let's blow stuff up, you know, guns and all this stuff, right? And uh, into, into the dirt world, um, hauling dirt for trucking which I still, I know it's a God thing why we're still together because I quickly, I drove the trucks. She drove the first year, then I took over, but we made a lot of money. And so I did what I wanted. Um, if I, we wanted a different house, we'd buy a house. If I wanted to watch, I'd buy a watch of cars, it didn't matter. I did what I wanted. Every weekend I was gone. It just didn't matter. Um, we ended up having our first daughter that we tried for, uh, wasn't, she wasn't a mistake. We purposely wanted to have a kid and, but I was just a very, very disconnected, very selfish individual. And her being independent, she just took over. She just handled things mm-hmm. um, and why she stuck with me. It still baffles me these days. I think she made a commitment and she's a person of her commitments. Mm. So, and I, and she tells me, she saw something in me that she knew that there was a man inside there and she knew that that man would come out one day. So what did she do to help pull that out? She just stuck by my side. Um, she put up with a lot. God has done a lot of stuff in our lives together that has brought us together very, very close. We've been through more than most couples go through. You know, I, I was, um, as a young kid, I was actually molested by my brother. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as a man, for that to be your first sexual experience is very dangerous. Um, and it puts you into a dark place and it gives a, a, an acceptability of things that should not be acceptable. Because you, you create these justifications as a cover for, your, for what's happened. You know, as a way to justify it and to just make it okay, right? So I, I, from that I became very, very selfish. At one point I actually cheated on her while I was in Vegas one time. Um, and our relationship really started just getting very, very, very rough. And I realized something inside of me just said, you can, uh, one thing I've always been is honest. Um, integrity I've always held extremely, extremely high. That's one thing I can take to my grave is, is the integrity. I can't take any of the stuff of this world with me, but how I treat people and my integrity is something that no matter what part of your life you're in, you can always have. You know, if you're living on the street and your integrity is still intact or can't be. Um, so it was chewing at me and I I finally sat down with her one day and I just said, I I need to talk to you. Um, you know, I've got out on you and just told her everything. And of course she got mad (laughs) and I almost lost her and my daughter. Mm. That was a big turning point for me, knowing that I could be losing something. And it made me realize how much I really cared for her at that point, because it was going away. You never realize what you have until it's gone. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it was going away. And I remember looking at her and saying, I think we need to go to church. Um, Prior to this, I would curse God all the time because God left me. God wasn't there for me. God didn't care about me. You know, looking back, I know that God's been there the whole time, right? It's God never leaves us. We leave him. Uh, We shut the doors on him. The problem is as individuals and humans is that we take our life experiences and we look at our fathers growing up. And we placed that on our father in heaven. Mm -hmm. And so my pastors in the past, my father in the past, my mother, even my brother, all that got placed on God. And that's how I viewed him, that God would leave me. If that's what a father is, then how can this be my father in heaven? And why would I wanna be a part of that? But then with that release of just the, of, of talking to my wife and all those things, saying we need to go back to church, I knew there was a hole that needed to be filled. What was her reaction when you said you wanted to go to church? She basically was like, I've been waiting for this. Really? Yeah, which we never talked religion. We never talked any of those things. I actually barely knew my wife. I felt like I didn't know her at all. Um, After, shoot, this was 15 years of us being together. So, I mean, we're talking the last like five to seven years that our relationship has really turned. How old was your daughter at the time? She was five six yeah something like that yeah it's all become kind of a blur to me because it just is like man that's just a story of my life and i just look forward to the future but yeah she was she was fairly young and i, I didn't i didn't pay attention to her um she meant nothing to me because she was on the way of what i wanted to do and we had a second daughter that we planned for we wanted a five-year gap so now i have these two kids and i've cheated on my wife so we go to church right We lived across the street from one of the mega churches Mm -hmm. uh ccv i always called it uh christ call to the valley because i could never get out of my my and i told this to the lead pastor so i'm not saying anything i didn't tell you know don yeah Yeah. but uh and he laughed he's like i got to use that on stage i said yeah it's either christ Cult to the valley or cash check or visa and uh i could never get out of my neighborhood on a Saturday evening or a Sunday morning because there was so much traffic going in and out of this stupid building for all these minions that are believing in something that's out there, right? Yeah. So we go. (laughs) And God is, uh, this is, you know, if you don't look at, you know, who Jesus really is and understand, like, after he was crucified, he came back and he was a total, he was a smart ass. And he pulled that one on me. We go to church, and my number one thing I hate about the church is the financial aspect of it. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I know business. I see the business side of the church. I hate it. Tithing, tithing, tithing. Give us your money. Give us your money. So we go to church, and we've got the day four of a four-part series on, called Monopoly. Mm-hmm. What's day four all about? Tithing. I'm like, really, God. I come back to your home and you want to talk to me about the one topic I hate about your home. <laughs> really? I thought you wanted me back. I mean, what do you, yeah. you know yeah. think? Mean? It's like, I hate spicy food, and somebody puts a plate of spicy food in front of you, and you're like, I'm starving. I don't want this. I hate spicy food, you know? So, this was my first experience coming back to the church. Mm-hmm. I was actually such an angry person that my dad drove out from California just to witness me going to church. He didn't believe I was actually going. So I remember coming back from that and I looked at my wife and I'm like, I said, you want to give it another chance? And she goes, uh, yeah, we need this. So I said, okay, I'll go one more week. So we go to the next one and it's a recap of the monopoly series, mostly covering tithing. I was like, really God, seriously, (laughs) are you trying to like say, no, don't come back home. But I remember also looking at my wife at the end of that series, they, they, we were in the alternative service where you didn't pass around the basket and you had a, a little pod you'd go and deposit your check in if you wanted to tithe. No obligation. And I remember looking at my wife and we were broke at the time. We, had, we were just disgustingly broke. We had nothing. Where was the trucking company at that point? We had sold that and we had moved up to Oregon and come back and we were you know, basically in, on the verge of bankruptcy at that point. Mm which is crazy growing up in the financial planning world and then be at 24 making a half million dollars a year with four companies. Um, and then seeing all that crumble, you know, that, that later on showed me that when you try to do things on your own, mm-hmm. you know, you can just kind of see where they end up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're only so strong by yourself. And so she said, yeah, let's, she says, absolutely. Let's give it a chance. So we wrote a check that we couldn't cash. Something like 230, 240 bucks, something like that. Yeah. And we went and deposited it in this tithing thing. And I said, all right, God, I'm giving you a chance. I'm testing you. (laughs) Uh, Which I know is funny, right? But I think he's okay with that in those moments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said, I'm I'm willing to take this chance with you. That's exactly what Gideon did. Yeah. Twice. Right. So we did that. And it was interesting because we didn't really do our books. We really didn't even want to see our numbers at that time. They just were not pretty. And uh, I remember getting a check in the mail from sprint for a refund or a rebate that we had applied for probably a year prior one of those rebates you apply for and you figure you'll never get yeah um showed up and it was almost exact a dollar amount for the check we wrote yeah which is like all right god i get it you know (laughs) here we are you've reimbursed this money right yeah a couple months later, CCV calls me and says, hey, we've gotten rid of the alternative service and we're going through the pods that we're depositing. And we came across an envelope that had wedged in the corner. That was the first check we wrote. Mm. And uh, it's stupid to cry over a check, but it's, these are those pieces that God puts in front of you to say, I am here. So not only was that money returned in a rebate we forgot about, but that check was never cashed in the first place. And the church called me, which most churches would not do. They would just find a check and go, woohoo, money, and throw it in an account, right? And I said, I, I can't afford to cash this check. And they said, we're fine with that. There's a purpose for this. They shredded the check. I heard it go on the shredder. It was on the, was on the phone. And uh, it was at that point that I started realizing that God was there. Mm. That wasn't a big turning point for me, but it was a point that I realized that he was there. And I started saying, okay, God, I, I understand you're here. Um, I still didn't understand what it was to live for him and give up of yourself. But I knew that he was there with me. Mm. So that was a big point in our relationship where we, we went to counseling um, with the church and we did the love language thing, and you know, which helped. Um, so I could understand what her love language was and what mine was and... Uh, we started working towards that. But again, it wasn't Christ-focused. Um, so it worked, but it wasn't sustainable yeah. in our relationship. But things started getting better. And it was interesting because the, the lead pastor's son at that point split off and started a, he's revamping a bar or a couple of the guys split off and they were going to turn this bar into a restaurant slash church. And I didn't have a job. So I volunteered down there at the church and uh, or to help build this place and I had applied it at a school district to become a lead mechanic which I never worked as a mechanic before but my resume showed you know we also had to own a flower shop we would own other companies but I was on my resume I wrote it up you know was a mechanic for the trucking company not owner because nobody wants to hire an owner mm-hmm. I wrote that I was a mechanic for the flower shop and on the you know the fleet maintenance and all this stuff right you fill out the resume for the job and I remember the day that they, we were done volunteering for this building of this church. I get a phone call from the school district that um, I was hired for the lead mechanic position. With no real experience in a mechanic shop. I just always wrenched on cars all my life. It's all self-taught, self-learned. So I was certainly not qualified. And actually I still say today that I think they intended on calling somebody else. But mine was the number that rang. Yeah. And so I got hired on the day that we were done volunteering. It's like, it almost felt like I was a servant for God, not knowing it. And then he says, okay, I'm, you know, I'm done with you here. I need you here. And I got a phone call for something I wasn't qualified for. So we just continued to move forward from that, man. And um, a mechanic shop started from the church. Um, a little Asian lady came up and said, I was referred to you, said that you can work on cars. And she ended up referring people and referring people. We had to buy another home because I needed space. And that grew into a mechanic shop. And. You know, just business kind of started, but I was still doing it on my own. It was still me. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until the Cigar Mechanic brokerage that I realized that I need to give this all to God and this needs to be for Him. Because this business was started because of Him. And He put me where we are today. How long ago did you start Cigar Mechanic? May of 2018 was when Cigar Mechanic brokerage, the company, started May of 2016 is when Cigar Mechanic was born and the logo was born. Um was just an Instagram handle while I had my mechanic shop. Mm-hmm. It's a place for me to post my cigars as I was wrenching on cars. Yeah. And I'd been around cigars for 20 years. Known everybody, you know, I've met, you know, obviously Rocky and Dr. Alejandro and all these guys and just kind of become friends with the people in the industry. I used to put together a smoking group. We'd go around to the lounges for the events and we'd all had our cigar shirts and there were mechanic shirts with our names and cigar patches on them. And (laughs) so all the owners knew me and, and it was interesting because I just thought it was something cool, but God was using that as a way to start developing my business before the business was developed. Mm -hmm. Because when Cigar Mechanic Brokerage was born, I knew most of the shop owners. So it was like, there was already relationships built in this business. It was really a just a really unique, cool opportunity when it happened. What really started to drive you towards that? Towards what? The business broker. Yeah. So I was wrenching. Um, well, actually, let's start before that. Um, I was talking with a, my best friend of mine. I was still at CCV. I was volunteering with the youth ministry, which I got fired from. Like, how do you get fired from a volunteer position at a church? Right. Why'd you get fired? Uh, the answer now or the answer then? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> the answer then was because they didn't like me and I just wasn't cool enough. Um, and there was a lot of that still. Uh, there was kind of the cool crowd. And if you didn't get along, you didn't get along. Um, the, the youth pastor was, we called it the Cody show. Mm-hmm. But also I know that like I was the guy, I was just, I was a distraction for the kids because I was worried about being cool with these kids and get along with everybody. Mm. I wasn't really there for God at the time. Um, so I was there to just be... Cool. Hey, look at me. I'm doing things. Look at me. I'm doing things. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm getting saved by doing things. You know. Yeah. Because still didn't get it. Still hadn't sunk into what it really means to be a Christian.
0: When did it sink in?
1: Within this business. Really? Yeah. Um, then there's. A, I'll, I'll get to that. There's a turning point for me. And forgive me now. I'll be probably bawling my eyes out because I do every time I tell the story. But. Through this volunteer thing, I met a friend of mine. I had actually ditched all of my friends. So when my wife and I, when we talked about the, the, the that I had you know, gone out on her and I cheated on her, I ditched all the friends I had at that point. I was off doing things with other people um, yeah. on the weekends. I'd gotten back into drugs. I told my wife that. I was doing a lot of cocaine on the weekends. And, you know, you're a 24-year-old kid making a half a million dollars a year in the trucking world as a selfish individual. You know, you party all weekend and you can afford it. So that started really, that when that turning point came, I, I ditched all of my friends and I started hanging out with people from the church. And a good friend of mine, Paul Kane, who's a very unique individual and I love him the bits. We went to go move, we finally bought a home. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were going to move and he asked one of the guys that was volunteering with the church also, Jason Laidlaw, and said, hey, um, my buddy's moving, do you guys wanna come help? And Jason, just being Jason, was like, yeah, sure, we'll come help. He pulls up with a whole clan of kids, He's one of these guys that's adopted kids and they've all kind of lived with him. He's kind of been a father figure. So he's got all these teenagers, like literally a suburban pulls up and like nine people get out of this suburban to help us move. And I know he saw me and knew who I was from the volunteer. We didn't know of each other, but he's basically saw me as like, oh, it's this guy because he saw me as this distraction. I was the annoying dude there. Right. But he still helped me move. Yeah. And we became best friends at that point. And just from that moment, we have now, we're now, he's a brother from another mother that I would lay my life down for. Mm. And we just became absolute best friends. And um, his wife was going to medical school to become a nurse. So he had a lot of time where she was gone. So we started hanging out a ton. And he just saw me. And actually, he tells me today, he's like, a lot of the people that I hung out with said, why are you hanging out with that guy? because all I did was listen to Rammstein. I had a mechanic shop. I was swearing up every other word was a swear word out of my mouth. I was angry, I would cuss at traffic. I was still this angry person, but I went to church. And he just said, he's, he's like, Brandon is the most real and raw and black and white person that I've ever met. You know where he is at all points. And yeah, he's rough, but there's something in him. And I remember one day coming to him and saying, Jason, there's a hole in my life. I don't know what it is, but I don't want to go back to church. I think we need to start a church. And he says, I was just praying yesterday that somebody encouraged me to start a church. Hmm. And we started a men's group. And from that men's group, I started to see who Christ was. We went through books like Play the Man. We went through John Eldredge, you know, a bunch of John Eldredge stuff. You know, a bunch of these different books currently going through Bondage Breaker. So these things that talk about what it really is to be a man, not in the world but what Christ sees as a man. And we started doing this men's ministry, this men's group, just us. And we were real and raw. I mean, dude, there wasn't a weekend or a week that went by that one of us wasn't in tears and just sharing what was going on in our lives and and being there for each other as brothers building brothers. I remember one day, one of his sons was over and I was wrenching on a car. It was gonna be a long six hour, I think it was a six hour book time job. And um, I was like, man, Another friend of mine texted me and said there a guy was in town that I knew from Facebook that was a national sales director for a cigar company. And I was so bummed because I couldn't go. Because I had this six-hour job I had to get done. And I got the job done in an hour and a half. <laughs> and done right. So it wasn't it just, it fell together, you know, just one of those things. And I've always kind of had a knack where I could look, because I wasn't, you know, school trained. Yeah, I could look at these cars and just go, okay, that's the part that needs to come out. There's a hole, let's get it out of there and let's just figure it out. So we got done in an hour and a half, and I looked at, um, I looked at Alex, Jason's son, and I said, um, I guess we're supposed to go to the cigar event and meet Oliver. And he goes, yeah, you think? And so I jump in the shower, get ready, and we shoot over there. And I remember driving down the road with tears in my eyes talking to him, and he's, he's telling me, he goes, when are you just gonna let go? When are you gonna let go? And I was like, I am sick of my life. I'm so sick of the struggle, I'm so sick of the battle. I remember flying down the freeway at like 80 miles an hour to get to this event, not even looking at the road, just looking straight up. What was it that you were struggling with? The anger, the... Just the anger, the aloneness. I just felt like everything was a battle. Every time I moved forward, I would fall back. Mm. There's just never an opportunity to continue to grow. I mean, we were were living off of... I had sold the mechanic shop at this point because my wife had surgery and we were done. I got nothing for the shop. I sold it for $5,000 and I think I owed like $10,000 in bills. And so it just felt like everything that I did was just a battle and a struggle and I just couldn't get to where I saw myself being. And it just felt like everything, I just always felt alone. And I felt there's just something that just wasn't right in my heart. And I was tired of fighting myself. So there I am flying down the freeway and I just say, I said, (laughs) again, I challenge God, right? I said, God, if you think you can handle this life, good luck. It's yours. I'm done. I give up. And I remember saying that. And Alex looking at me going, it's about time. I didn't even look at the road, dude. I wasn't even looking at the road. It didn't matter. Yeah. Because I was just done. I said, I am so sick and tired of this life. And you think, you know, I think, and excuse my French, but I think the literal words were, if you think you can handle this piece of shit life that you've dealt me, then good luck. Hmm. And I was angry, and I was hurt, and uh, I think God said, "Hold my beer," because we get to ambassadors, cigars, and I run and I go into the shop, and there's Oliver, and he you know, does the typical thing, you know, hey, I'm Oliver, you know, typical sales thing, mm-hmm. and I said, "I think we know each other. Are you Havana daydreaming on, on Instagram?" He goes, "Yeah." Who are you? And I said, "I'm a cigar mechanic." He's like, "Dude, no way!" And we sat down to talk for two hours, had nothing to do with God, but he says, I'm looking for a rep in the area. Um, I can't find the rep that we had. Do you know of anybody I'm really, literally mumbled. I was like, I've always thought about doing this business. I think it'd just be kind of cool. And he goes, dude, get your paperwork together and it's, it's yours. You can rep our company. <laughs> oh crap. Um, okay. So a couple days later, I sent them all the LLC paperwork. We set up the corporation, and Cigar Mechanic was born. And it's interesting that that happened right after I said, God, this is yours. And God's like, yeah, it's been mine. That's why you get that job done in an hour and a half so you can be at this meeting. So we went to Hawaii for a couple weeks. I know it sounds like that glamorous thing, right? But we, my wife is really good at airlines. It costs us nothing to go there. Mm-hmm. And... uh I get introduced to Casa Cueva cigars. And I'm talking to Gabriel Alvarez, who was the national sales director. And um, I said, When I come back May 1st, we'll launch the brokerage. And they said, Well, we want to come out and spend two days with you just to make sure. We had such bad experience with our last broker. We want to make sure you're the one we want to go with. Which, by the way, the last broker that had it said, Good luck, nobody wants it. He had it for eight months, opened one account, and said, Good luck, nobody wants this cigar. These are fantastic sticks, bro. Every, right. single, every single Casa Cuevas I've ever had has been a good stick. Right. Tastes outstanding. Right. There's nothing wrong with these cigars, right? So, and I had smoked a couple, and I go, "Man, there's just no way. So he says, good luck. Nobody wants it. And I think, you know, at that point, I was like, cool, hold my beer. And uh, <laughs> So the owner, Luis Cuevas, and his, at that time, national sales director, Gabe, come out, and they spend the first two days of my brokerage with me. Yeah, these are the first two days of my brokerage and I've already got the owner and the national sales director with me There is no book for dummies of how to start a cigar brokerage and most guys aren't willing to share their secrets with you So you're, you figure it out as you go mm-hmm. So I called and I said all these as I was in Hawaii. I'm calling and setting all these appointments knowing I got to come back We went from appointment to appointment. They only spent two days We opened five accounts and sold 120 boxes every appointment. We walked into I was greeted with a hug and because of the past and what God was planning before I even knew there was a plan in place, those relationships were already established. Yeah. And I remember Lewis looking at me and going, this experience is a lot different than the last times we've been out here, the last couple of times. I said, yeah, you should have given me more time out here. Because I mean, you're out for two days. They're like, well, last time we were out here for five and it was a colossal waste of our time. So we didn't want to come out that long. They came out five times that year. Uh, We built the brand to one of the fastest and largest growing brands in Phoenix as far as a boutique. Um, I have shops that I was out selling Fuente and Padrones. And we just got to work and we just did it. Um, I think that year I sold like 40% of the total company sales in just Arizona alone. Wow. Yeah. And it just, it exploded.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's been great ever since. And as I've been learning more and more through my men's group and just, understanding and releasing more and more to God, you know, because we always, we, we always like to hang on to our little pieces, right? Like, Oh God, my life is yours. But except for this one and, and this piece here, I got this and I'm going to hang on to this over here. Like, you know, when do we fully release everything and say, this is hundred percent yours and I'm going to listen to you. And so the more I've released that in this brokerage, the more successful the brokerage has become. So Companies started calling me in the brokerage because they say, we want what you've done for Casa Cuevas. And it's kind of fun now in my role because I get to say, well, then cool. You got to do what Casa Cuevas did. And the first year you're going to send me, I'm going to give out more samples than we sell. And you're going to be out here five times. Well, we don't, what? I said, no, you got to understand, like you got to put in the work too. That's how this built. Mm-hmm. So you know, I've been blessed to just, man, I've been called by companies and I was very, very picky on who I worked with. Mm. I turned down a lot of companies. This is the time that I was living on credit cards. I was broke as a joke. I remember calling Casa Cuevas going, hey, can I get my check early? Because I don't know how I'm going to pay gas to get up to Vegas to hit that territory. Um, and Lewis just being such an amazing dude always was just so helpful, always took care of me. And so we just, we started, you know, accepting brand after brand, but I interviewed them as much as, I, as they interviewed me because I wanted to make sure I was working with honest and integritous people. I didn't want to represent anything I didn't believe in. And I didn't want to represent anybody that I couldn't put in my car and put face-to-face with a client of mine. And I didn't want to represent anybody that wasn't going to pay me, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is business at the end of the day. Yeah. So now I'm so incredibly blessed because I have relationships with all these guys and they're just all amazing individuals that make great, great cigars. And I think a lot of that has been just understanding and seeing, not even knowing, but seeing how God has been there for me. And how that needs to affect my relationships here on earth. Because we're, we're put here to be Christ-like and to be like Him. And how do we exude that as best as possible? How do we show that in every possible light? Now I have these, man, it's amazing. I have these meetings that are cigar me. I mean, I was telling you that yesterday I was in a meeting. I ended up crying with my customer. I'm in tears because I'm just talking about this story. And sharing what's gone on in life. And she's sharing with me what's gone on in her life. And we're just... We're in tears together talking about this stuff. And then we talked like 10% of the, cigar, the conversation with cigars. And we did orders and we were done, right? But these relationships have just been so beautiful. And I feel so blessed to be a part of all of this.
0: How has your relationship with your wife morphed and changed to where you can say with tears in your eyes, she's the love of your life, best Oof. friend? What, like, what practically did you do? Because I guarantee you there are people, there are guys listening right now that they're where you were mm-hmm. seven, eight years ago. And they're on the verge of just saying, I give up. I don't know how I'm going to do this.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's been interesting because it's, it's been long but quick at the same time. Um, because I think there was a building up in our relationship before we knew it. But really one of the first things I did with my wife was just admit that I needed help. Um, and just saying, I need your help. I want to change. I want to spend, and, and getting deep in my heart that I actually, back from the day I first saw her, that I wanted to spend the rest of my, my life with her. That divorce was not an option. Because mm. that was an option prior, and it wasn't for her. Um, I remember even saying to her that we can get divorced because we were fighting so much, and it was. she's like, that's not an option. Mm. So her strength was just phenomenal. So number one thing was being vulnerable with her, um, admitting my faults, understanding that I needed help, asking her to be patient with me in that growth and in that change, because it doesn't happen overnight. I've been developing these habits for 30 years. I'm not gonna change them overnight. There's a process to it. So asking her for that support and that understanding was one of the big things. I think the biggest thing in our relationship was me being there for my daughter. This is the one that chokes me up the most because um, I didn't care. Um, I saw my daughters acting out. You know, I have the two daughters. My, my youngest is my little holy roller. She's always been, she listens to newsboys and she, you know, Jesus this. If I'm crossing the Hoover Dam and I'm like, look, there's the damn water. You know, like you, take the, you, know you make the Hoover Dam jokes, right? And we're crossing the damn bridge, you know? And she's, dad, you can't say those words. You know, she's always been my holy (laughs) roller, right? But my oldest was acting out. And I know why now, because I was never there for her. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell this story is, um, we found out that she had been on Snapchat with some boy at school Mm -hmm. and we found the snap and my wife was livid. And this is when we finally started working together with the family, right? Mm -hmm. She shows me the Snapchat thing where um, there had been pictures sent back and forth my daughter was talking about that she was doing drugs, which we knew she wasn't. She was talking about that she was, um, you know, that she had had sex, that she'd done all those things, which we know none of this had actually happened, but she's saying these things for acceptance. I remember looking at that and just saying, man, she's so broken. What have I done? Ooh, that hits hard. Because remember Samoa? Mm-hmm. Learning accountability. God's got a plan bigger than me. And he knew what I was going to be approaching. So to sit back and say, what have I done Um, is huge. And um, my dad had been asking me to go to this camp for a year, for over a year um, in California for Freedom Outreach is the name of the camp. And they're based on John Eldridge's teachings. Mm -hmm. And I've been denying it, denying it, denying it, denying it. I don't need that kumbaya crap. I've been to plenty of Christian camps in my life. I don't need that junk, right? Yeah. Finally, he calls me one day and goes, hey, you're, uh, and this will tie into my, my relationship with my wife, but he calls me and says, hey, you, I bought you a ticket. You're going to camp. I was like, okay. Hey, Jason, you're coming to camp. So you know, I, could, I look at my buddy and my best friend. I'm like, safety blanket, you're coming. So we both go to this camp. I went there to fix my dad. I didn't realize I was going there to that for a father to be fixed. In my mind, it was to fix my father. As we're there, we go through these really cool processes and these just amazing life changing um, sessions. And we go through this really deep session. And um, I remember after that session, I had so much stuff I needed to get off my chest with my dad. So we go for a hike. Um, Jason comes with, and I'm going to take him up on this mountain, and we're going we're to go up on the mountain, and we're going to hash things out, and our relationship's going to be better from this point forward, right? Our mindsets, this is where we think. And I'm on this hike, and um, I cross over a feather on a windy day on the path. My daughter is an amazing artist, and she has been doing a lot of stuff with feathers and painting feathers recently, so I think of my daughter as I cross-step over this feather. I'm like, oh man, I miss her. She's so beautiful. And I continue up the path to go on what I wanted, which is to tell my dad how he was wrong. I tell my dad how he was wrong and it went perfect, right? Our relationship is great now, right? No, not at all. Because it was what I wanted, not what God needed. So the conversation went horribly wrong. We're coming back down the hill and that feather is still in the same spot on a windy day in the path. And I step over that feather and I think of my daughter again. But I continue on my path where I want to go. And something inside of me says, hey, stupid, pick up the feather. The feather, And I realized that this is how I've been treating my daughter all of her life. Just stepping over her. Stepping over her needs for my wants. Ooh. You want to talk about getting hit? So, Did it hit you at that moment when you picked it up? It didn't hit me as hard as it hit me later. Okay. But I knew that there was something coming and I was like, ah, crap. You know, (laughs) here we go. I remember I, I bought this little Stretch Armstrong Jesus for my younger kid, you know, my younger daughter. And I had this feather for my oldest daughter. I remember coming back from down the hill, which by the way, the camp was like a total confirmation that my buddy Jason and I were on the right path, right? We had called our little group, Band of Brothers, and we called ourselves Warriors. And at this camp, they're called the Band of Brothers. They're swords up on stage, and we're warriors for Christ. We're like, dude, confirmation. We're on the right path. God's got us, you know. Everything was in alignment with what we were doing. So my mindset at that point was confirmation of what we're doing, fix my dad. And um, we come back down that hill, and I said, cool. I'm going to go and find a Hallmark card that says everything I want to say to my daughter, and I'm going to put this feather in there, and she's going to love it, right? Yeah, God says, think again Mm. couldn't find a hallmark card that fit the bill so I end up writing I'm just gonna write a little thing in there to my daughter I wrote the entire inside and small font of this both sides inside of this card it was tears in my eyes as I'm writing this because I'd heard at camp that we need to chase the heart of the beauty and we need to Be able to listen to our children and our wives and the people in our lives and understand how we've wronged them and how we've hurt them and realize that that's not an attack on us. It's just simply how they felt through their filters of their life and how they experienced what happened. I may not have done it intentionally to hurt her, but me being away has hurt her. Me acting the way I was had hurt her. And I need to recognize that and accept that that those are her feelings. Um, so I wrote in this letter just saying, baby girl, I love you so much. I want you to know how much I've been thinking about you. And I said, here are the things that I know, I so said, I know I've hurt you. And here are the things that I know that I've done to hurt you. And I spelled out the things that I've done that I know to hurt her. You know, just being gone, yelling at her, you know, taking my anger out on her. All of these things. And... Um, I remember saying to her, I said, baby girl, I want you to know that I want to hear your heart. Mm. And I want you to share with me what I've done to hurt you. And I want you to be open with me. And I would love to have the opportunity to ask for your forgiveness. So I wrote this card and I put the feather inside and I left it on her pillow while she was gone. I was sitting down the hall and just in my chair. And she came home. And next thing I know, she walks down the hall with tears in her eyes. This is a little girl that hasn't talked to me in a while. That was writing, sending pictures to boys. That was going down the wrong path. And for the first time in a long time, she called me daddy and said she loved me. See, I knew that she was a reflection of me. And she needed her daddy's heart. I didn't need to be a father of the world. where I told her what to do. I needed to be a father of example, of compassion, of strength and love, like our father in heaven. And I asked her, I said, baby, will you please share with me everything I've done to hurt you? And she started very surfacy. And I told her, I said, I will not respond with anything other than asking for your forgiveness. No matter whether I agree with it or not, it doesn't matter. These are her feelings. Totally. And we sat there and we had a tear felt conversation and we got so deep. And every time I said, baby girl, will you please forgive me? I'm so sorry. And then I got intentional on her, on understanding her. And Steve, I gotta tell you, she's an amazing artist and she's drawn self-portraits so many times, but she never, ever had her eyes exposed in a single self-portrait that she drew. After that conversation, she drew a self-portrait where her hair was off to the side and one of her eyes was exposed. And the depth of that eye, it's a no- That being a father and having her heart be so important and chasing that heart that she can see the beauty in herself. That she's willing to show her soul and expose that just changed everything in my life. Changed everything in my marriage. Changed everything in my friendships and in my heart to see that transformation knowing that you just have to let God take control, knowing that she's not attacking me, she has her feelings, and she has her understandings. This is a kid that told me she didn't know if she believed in God, Mm -hmm. and I don't blame her, because I'm her example of a father. And uh, now we actually get to have conversations about God she went on from struggling through school to finishing high school early. Mm. She started a job at Target at age 16 and a half. She bought her her Jeep. She bought her truck. We worked on the Jeep together. She's gone on trips with me. Um, we spend time together. I ask her how her day was, and I'm still certainly not perfect by any means, but I've made her important in my life. And I've chased the beauty in her heart. She's my little warrior princess. She's not a burden. Mm. And uh, to see her turn like that. You know, she graduated high school early on her own. While all the kids were hanging out in the summer, she's doing summer school because she wanted to get done early. As soon as she graduated, she was working three jobs. She's saving her money. She's doing, She's her conversations are better. She doesn't fight when we're like, hey, baby girl, I need you to do dishes. Oh, okay. It's not a fight anymore to do the chores. It's to a reminder. She's still a teenager, right? But the fights are gone. Everything turned and changed. And that's not because of me. Mm. The only part I had in it was listening to what God needed and where he needed to be in that relationship. And that's been a turning point for my wife and I We just had our 20-year wedding anniversary on February 9th. And um, I remember saying to my friends, I'm more in love with her today than I was from the day we met. We talk every day. Now I'm on this trip, seven days gone from home, and talk about how much I miss her. And I just think about her every waking moment. Um, I think about my kids every waking moment and just how much I'm in love with them. That chasing of my daughter's heart and realizing what it meant to be a true father. My dad was not the example of my father in heaven. Mm -hmm. I call it a perfect bad example, but getting to understand Jesus and getting to understand God and who they truly are, not the sissification that's taught in the church, but the true Jesus and who he really is, has opened my heart and has opened my eyes to see so much more and to be able to hear him so much more and just see his beauty in everything in life. Mm. So that's been a big turning point in our marriage. I've gone to that camp six times now. We're going, I'm going again in April. I've got 23 guys coming with us from all across the country. And um, we're flying in for this because it's been life-changing, man. I am, <laughs> I am on the mountaintop screaming for this camp, man, because it has just been so life-changing. And it's not the camp. It's what God does there. Um, it's the vulnerability and the openness, which is so tough for men, so tough for men. Mm. I think there's so much strength in tears, even though the world tells us that there's not. The world tells us that our tears are signs of weakness, but I think they're the ultimate sign of strength. Now, is it Jason that you've started a church with? Yeah. A, a different kind of church? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From this group that we started a few years ago has actually spurred another church, uh, group or what, you know, so when we talk about church. We don't talk about the establishment and the building. Um, it's, it's so far removed from the building of the church, right? When you look at what the biblical church was, it's people doing life together. It's families coming together. It's men coming together before Christ, making Christ the center of your relationships, And the only way to do that is to work through your crap. Mm -hmm. Because God's always there. We just don't let him in. Um, You know, imagine walking down a hallway with all the doors shut. Because this is my secret here, my secret here. And God's like, I know all these. But the one he'll never take away from us is our free will. We have the right to make a decision of whether we want to follow him or not. So when do we open those doors and say, God, come into this room too. Mm -hmm. to your dirty, dark, secret room. When do you let God into that and start opening those doors and saying, I give you every part of my life, even my dirtiest, darkest secrets are yours. My happy moments are yours. My sad moments are yours. I give it all to you and lay it at your feet. And the important thing that I've been talking about in our group too is when you open those doors and you release that crap, you scare out those demons because right by the blood of Christ, we have the power to force demons out. We were given that power through Christ's name, by his blood and the crucifixion. I don't need some priest to go pray over me. I don't need to be in some whatever holy water sprinkled on my forehead. I don't need any of that stuff. I need to have faith. And I need to have that, have that strength through his blood. So when we scare those demons out of those dark rooms that we have... The problem I see so often is that men leave those rooms empty. Mm -hmm. They think, oh, I've gotten rid of it. I've gotten rid of it. That's when those things reoccur. Pornography comes back. You know, uh, infidelity comes back. All these things come back because you're not filling that room with Christ. So you may scare all the demons out, but what are you filling it back up with? Mm -hmm. Because when you leave it empty, that's a space for demons to come in. And so we're teaching these things through this church about, and our church is basically men getting together. It's called House of Rejects. And it's, we're we're planting the home churches the way it was originally intended. And men are getting together and becoming vulnerable and sharing their lives. Um, I know in our group, the impact it's made in my life, Mm -hmm. um, being able to just shed a tear, become more vulnerable. I'm not embarrassed to cry. Um, I think the story is so powerful. And actually for me, when I tell the story of my daughter, the moment I stop crying I need to look deep inside and ask, why are you telling that story right now? Because that passion of the story and the truth of the story goes away. It just becomes a story. It doesn't become, it's no longer a testimony. So I want to make sure I always have tears in my eyes when I'm telling the story of my daughter and that feather, because that is my testimony. It's been life changing and it is an emotional moment, right? So it's teaching men that we can be that way. And that's okay. It's laying down these things at the foot of the cross. It's holding each other accountable in these groups. So we have a Wednesday night group that gets together in my cigar lounge at home. We smoke cigars together. Wonderful. Then we do Jesus. And then, um, of all things, online Facebook, which is used for so much evil, spurred another group, which is called Unfinished Men. And it's eight of us across the country. We get together every Saturday morning, and we do life together over internet over Google Meets. All those guys are coming out to the camp and we just do life together. And I gotta tell you, with that group in the last four months, because Jason and I have learned a lot in this last couple of years developing this. And it wasn't something we were even purposely developing, it just developed. Mm-hmm. It was God, right? <laughs> In this group that we have on the Saturdays, I'm seeing these letters come across from some of these guys. They're sharing their lives with us on a daily basis. And they're sharing, my wife left this letter for me saying how much she loves me and how much of a different man I am. Ooh. These men are getting their lives back. They're getting their wives back. They're getting their children back. We're inspiring each other. This isn't me sitting here preaching at anybody. I was laughing about it the other day. I said, wait, I started a church. Does that make me a pastor? (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to get up on a pulpit and preach. These men need to grow together. Christ will do the work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if you allow him. And so it's allowing him. It's breaking down the crap and the barriers that we've put between us and Christ and saying, God, come in and do the work.
0: One of the things that you mentioned as we were talking before we recorded, this isn't just a once a week thing. This is daily you guys are using like marco polo and whatsapp and daily talking to each other and checking in and explain for those that don't know what marco polo is and how you guys are utilizing that and whatsapp and and then if someone is listening and they want to get plugged in they want to check you out how do they find you
1: yeah so um marco polo is an app that was um that's just designed simply as you do a video message and you send it you can do groups or to individuals yeah so we have the group um and you just literally it's awkward and uncomfortable for most people because you look at the camera you see yourself and you speak yeah it's so much better than text because you can see the eyes you can see the emotions you can see every part of a person when they're sharing right because it's easy for me to type something oh i'm having a great day but if my head's down and my eyes are closed and I'm looking depressed saying I had a great day, I need my brothers to call me out. Them. Be like, bro, that doesn't look like you had a great day. You might want to tell your face. So to have that visual between each other and you can send those messages and then you can get to the messages whenever you want and you respond and it's in this group. That's the Marco Polo app. And we do that on the we, we encourage everybody on a daily basis to be on that. And it's interesting when you don't see somebody for a couple days, you'll see one of the guys come up and go, hey, so-and-so, where are you at? We're calling each other out. It's interesting to watch these men become leaders. Because see, the online group was started by a buddy of mine, Travis, that I met through a Facebook group. And he says, dude, I'm so sick of the church. And I said, start your own. And he goes, what? I said, start a group. Well, I don't know what that looks like. Cool. I'll help you. So we started this group. Yeah. And these guys have all taken leadership roles. Every one of them. There is no leader of this group. They've all taken the leadership roles for each other. Because I'm in no higher position than they are. They hold me accountable just like I do for them. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. This isn't the pastor that we put up on a pulpit and we go, look at that guy, he's so great. And then he goes home and you know beats his wife and goes to the strip club. You know, I'm not saying every pastor's that way, but... You know, you see so many Christians that way that profess Christ with their lips, but they deny Him with their actions. Ooh. And so what we are doing is encouraging us as men to profess Christ with our actions. And it doesn't mean, you know, I'll help the lady across the street today, so I'm going to heaven. It's how do you live your day-to-day? What's your language look like when you're speaking for pe- to people? People look at you and say, why are you so happy? Are you saying... Because I won the lottery, or are you saying because I feel blessed? Because I have God in my life. And so, it's interesting because the Bible says we'll be rejected by the world when we live for Christ. And I'm okay with that. I'm not here for the world. I can't take the world with me. And when I pass from this earth, I can't live with the world. I can live with Christ. And so... How are we leaving an impact on this world before we leave, before we go? And my feeling is if I can help one person to become a man or a woman, which we're going to be working on developing some women's ministry stuff too, but as a man, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be in that place, right? That's not where we're called to be as men. (laughs) But if I can impact one man, who's that man going to impact? And it's interesting because I see so many quote unquote pastors that they talk about, I've brought this many people to Christ. I've opened this many churches. I've done this many. I have this many in my congregation. And they're all about these stupid numbers. I don't care. If one man, if God can work through me to change one man, maybe that's the one man that goes and works through thousands. It doesn't have to be me. I don't need the golden trophy as a person that brought the most people to Christ. What I want to be is the man that helped at least one person walk so close with Christ that they can feel him at every moment of their life. They can praise him with every single thing they do, every spoon of cereal they eat, they thank God for it. Because I got to tell you, Steve, I've been in a situation where I actually felt God. And when I mean Felt God I felt him physically this is stuff that like I never like I didn't like the heebie-jeebie stuff right like I grew up as a kid thinking somebody was looking at my window all the time and freaked out I even remember saying like I don't want any of this stuff near me if you're, if you're floating around spirits whatever get away you be behind me I don't want to see you and I was in a church at one of their camps I'd been invited to and they'd started it's weird you walk into this building and it was so empty and by empty I mean there was no spirit It was was void of the spirit. I remember being in their service, having and realizing my hand was on my gun and I was looking for an escape. I wasn't listening to the sermon in a church service, bro. Mm -hmm. That's not cool. We go through a session where they're talking about salvation and they say the way, you know, you're being saved when you learn to speak in tongues. And they start doing the session and I'm like, I'm out of here. But something said, stay. Remember the power of Christ. And I stood in that session and everybody's, you know, you, you stand up and they, you're praying to God and asking for him to bring you the, the gift of tongues and all this kinds of stuff. And these guys are speaking in tongues all around you to turn to this like just massively demonic feeling thing. There was spirit in the room, but it wasn't good. And I remember just praying. And, and it's so funny because at that moment, that little kid of me that comes out that wants that acceptance, mm-hmm. that little kid, that desire to be accepted comes out. And I remember they were saying, just speak out in tongues. You'll learn it. Just speak out in tongues. And I remember just to myself saying, just speak gibberish because then they'll leave you alone. Yeah. And I went to go speak gibberish because a little kid wanted to. And I heard something that said, be silent, my son. Hmm. Oh, what? Be silent, my son. So I didn't speak. And I feel a hand on my shoulder and just gibberish. It always sounds like Arabic to me when they're doing this stuff anyways. It's so weird, right? Just speaking in tongues, somebody touches me. And is praying over me. And then I hear again, you know, my little kid comes out again. Just say what the prayer you're saying right now. Because the whole time I'm saying, Lord, protect me. Through the power of Jesus Christ and your blood, I know I have your protection. I know that you, you know, I cast out these demons. Through the strength that was given to me by his crucifixion, his blood, I cast the demons out. You have no control over me. And, and my little kid's saying, just mumble what you're saying. Be silent, my son. So finally, I start praying, Lord, what do you need me to hear? And another hand touches me. I'm not of the stuff, right? And I hear, be silent, my son. I'm proud of you. Mm. That hits. Mm-hmm. That hits any man. To hear your father say, I'm proud of you. That's what every little boy desires, right? Then I feel a hand hit my chest. And this hand this is silent. And I knew who it was. Because my whole body turned to fire. And I just got hot and started sweating. And it was a physical person, I knew who it was, but they weren't speaking in tongues. And I started just praying. I was like, Lord, protect me. I'm getting weak. I'm in this battle. Protect me. And I remember praying and saying, I am so weak. And at that moment I feel a hand on my shoulder, on my left shoulder. This was different. There's no footsteps leading up, there's no footsteps going away. Ten seconds later the hand had not left. When every other time it had. And I remember with my my I had my head held up high and my eyes closed. And in my mind, you can kind of do that sweep of the room. And I look back and I see these giant glorious wings, bright white wings, and they weren't stretched out. They were held up high and proud, like holding shoulders up high, right? And I remember just feeling this comfort in my soul. The heat went away and I was comforted and it felt like everything around me was like, oh crap. So whatever it was, was strong enough that nothing would come near it. And I felt the, I remember I I swayed and I could feel the hand shift on my shoulder as if there was a human with their hand and my, my shoulder's getting warm as if there's actually a hand there. So they get done with this thing and I turn instantly and I look and there's nothing there. We drive home from this camp and I call Jason. I said, dude, I feel dirty. I feel like I need cleansing. I need prayer. I need my brothers. He says, come over. I walk in the door, his wife looks at me and goes, what's wrong? His dog almost attacks me. His wife says, what did you do? What's wrong? There's something on you. And we go in the back and we talk and I just start crying. I'm talking shaking. I can't speak. I'm in tears. They're praying over me. They got their hands on me. And I felt like I'd been in battle and I was covered in the blood of demons. And as I'm trying to speak, I'm trying to pray. I just keep hearing the word Gabriel come into my head. At that moment, I knew that he loved me so much that he sent Gabriel to protect me in that moment. Mm. And that was a huge turning point for me as well. Mm. That's when I said, "God, everything is yours. Everything. Show me where to go. I'm not even going to ask. Take my hand and guide me. What are we doing? Let's go." Then the battle begun. And that's what we do as a church. That's what we do as House of Rejects. We battle. We swing our swords and we come together and we sharpen the swords. We talk about our daily battles and we're men that are out there fighting for our lives, fighting for our women, fighting for our children and strengthening each other. Redefining what the true meaning of the church is. How do people get involved? Right now, we're, we literally just got our 501c3. Um, and I think the group that we have online, it's interesting that we're doing this podcast because we were just talking the last couple of days that there's been a feeling that there's a division coming in a good way, that there's going to be some of the men in the group that are going to split off and start other groups and help encourage other men to develop these groups. So we're still in the complete development you know, phase. We don't even have a Facebook. We don't have an Instagram. We don't have anything right now. I have them reserved, but we're doing I this. Mean, I work so much but I think that the team that's being built through the two groups that we have right now is gonna be a team of warriors that's gonna go out there and lead other men and continue to grow these groups. So how we get involved right now, it's tough. I would ask people to um, probably message me just you know, either on Instagram or Facebook on Cigar Mechanic. Um, find me and shoot me a message there directly. We're still developing everything and all the contact information Um, We want to develop YouTube videos to help get these groups off the ground, to help inspire them to move. We need help. Um, Because there's a battle coming, guys. We're in this world that is just going sideways. But I think more and more men are realizing that the world's going sideways and they need something bigger than themselves. And so we're here to provide that and help bring that to light for them. But we need help in developing this. Any volunteer organization and church is... Dependent upon volunteers and people for help. I just know there's a calling. And it's funny because Jason says, this is yours. His son says, I'm a king. That's funny because being here in the lion's den, right? Because a lion has become such a big symbol for me. Um, Leading a pack from the front, not from the back with a scepter. Is how I see this. Mm -hmm. And I've got this great team of men that are behind me and that are right there running right alongside coming along saying hey where do we need to go and we've been having more and more people asking um, and it's coming together so I would say message me on, on Cigar Mechanic if we get some guys together I will more than be happy to, to help put that together and as we develop this we'll have more ways to contact Brandon Wells yes sir let's get to rapid fire questions uh oh <laughs>
0: Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80-year-old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020 he also talked about how he wrestled with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in but the podcast is changing that when i showed this decay at his house recently we both started tearing up this is my why for doing this show so if that moved you would you consider partnering with us and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt and more. That's patreon.com Slash Holy Smokes! You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypalme club, and both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire! <laughs> fire!
1: When did you first try cigars or pipe? <sighs> when I was twenty years old. So 21 years ago, a buddy of mine came out that I'd met in Samoa and says, you want to try cigars? And I said, sure. And he called a whole bunch of shops in the valley and said, do you guys carry Macanudos? And every one of them, of course, said yes. And he says, you guys have a lot of really good shops out here. And we thought that that was actually a good cigar at the time. And uh, we went and bought some cherry flavored cigars. And that shop still stands today. It still has the same brick floor I remember walking into. The guy sounded like death walking when we asked about cigars. And I looked at him and said, do we really want to get into this? He's like, yeah. So that was my first cigar that I, that I actually personally bought. Before that, my dad had caught me smoking cigarettes and made me inhale a whole cigar to try and teach me. And now when I sit on the side of the lake fishing with him, I go, "How's it feel to know you introduced me to this industry? <laughs> <laughs> but that was my first cigar. Do you do pipes at all? Very little. I find pipes to be work. And I work all day long. I don't want to work for my enjoyment. I understand the men that do it, and I I get it. But it just does not seem... Maybe I just don't know how to do it well. I don't know. I just like a cigar. I want to cut it, light it, relax. What's your favorite cigar? I'll give you the answer I give everybody else. I have two favorite cigars. The one I haven't smoked yet. (laughs) And the free one. (laughs) (laughs) those are my two favorite cigars in all honestly and and sorry for the rest of the companies if you hear this but probably my favorite that I smoke the most is the Casa Cuevas Connecticut and I think interestingly about cigars is more people smoke the band and the relationships with that cigar manufacturer than they actually smoke the cigar to me I have so much happiness with Cuevas and the way that they introduced me into this industry and allowed me to and gave me that chance yeah that smoking that cigar just brings me back to that every time hmm Cigars are about memories, dude. Totally. Yeah. What's the most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Oh. That's interesting because sometimes I don't know the price of these cigars that I smoke. I don't know what they cost because they're, they're given to me at trade shows or in different places. But um, What's the most expensive cigar you've ever purchased then? Probably 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't see spending over, over that for a cigar. It just, you know, price doesn't dictate quality. But I, I think the Bahiques go for like 100 or 150 bucks. I smoked one of the, the Cuban Bahiques; uh, that was gifted to me. I actually have a couple of those. It's probably one of the most expensive that I've smoked, maybe. Best dollar for dollar cigar. Probably the Costa Cuevas, Connecticut. That's why I smoke it so much. And, and in this role, it's really hard for me to answer some of these, right? Because I've got like, companies that I'm working with. But I just love that Connecticut, man. You can smoke it any time of the day. It's very flavorful with you know without having to have a ton of strength I smoke six to 12 cigars a day so I'm not gonna smoke all full body cigars yeah you know I smoke mostly mild what's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke just water sometimes coffee um I don't drink a ton I don't drink a lot of you know I went through my whole uh, drunken phase and uh I don't drink a ton of liquor but yeah just just water most interesting person you've ever met through cigars Interesting as in, like, eccentric interesting or just interesting overall? Both. Both. (laughs) Probably the most eccentric interesting person I've ever met would probably be um, Jonathan Drew. He's just an interesting character. Kind of like a Cigar Jack Sparrow almost, you know. You're just kind of like, why why are you wearing a scarf in the summer with tinted sunglasses? Um, (laughs) Indoors. So he was an interesting one. Aside from that, I just have been so close with the Cuevas family that I've learned their history and their lineage. That I've gained so much knowledge from them that they're probably one of the probably one of the most interesting people. And it's not like they've led like super interesting lives. It's just they've opened up to me, so I get to understand where they're at, where they are, and where they come from.
0: Mm.
1: So I derive a lot of interest from them. I just spent so much time with them that best place you've ever smoked the side of green valley lake fishing with my dad Mm. my relationship with my dad right now is a big struggle
0: Mm.
1: but all i desire is for my dad to desire to know me and who i am as a man today that i have become instead of the child that i was Mm. but every time i've sat on the side of that lake we went there he took me there as a kid and every time I sit on the side of that lake, even in silence, with just, my dad doesn't smoke cigars, but even in silence, just smoking a cigar brings so much happiness mm. to my life. Probably second to that would be Dominican Republic with the Cuevas family. Most memorable cigar experience? The first one. The flavored chasing down a cigar and smoking a flavored cigar with my buddy, Jared. who's was like a brother from another mother just because that whole experience, I think everybody remembers their first one. Uh, that that's definitely my most memorable cigar experience. Second to that would be when I blended my own cigar uh, down at the Cuevas factory in Dominican, sitting around at dinner in an outdoor dinner venue. And this is like the most faux pas thing is to pass around a cigar. You don't do that. But we had one cigar of my blend that I actually made the entire blend and we pass that around and watching luis cuevas luis Cuevas senior gabor alvarez all raise their eyebrows when i when we pass that cigar around of like hmm, there's something here that like i'd actually done something it was like i'm a master blender <laughs> 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 like i tripped and landed in gold like it, it actually turned out to be a good cigar you still getting those blended uh, i only have a few left we're, we're actually we've been in talks about me going back down to Dominican and blending some more and making, making some more of those of that blend. Yeah. I want to smoke one. If we make some more, I will give you one, bro. I want. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've got like six left, so I don't really share those. I hang on to them, but, and I'm also testing to see how they age. um, Because I have smoked a cigar that smoked amazing. And then a month later, it just went flat. Um, So we're, we're, I'm also seeing how that, that blend ages. You told a story before we started recording
0: about how you have used cigars to get out of stuff and get early on and being a broker, you carry cigars with you around all the time. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those stories for the listeners?
1: So the, the best one is the, the airline one is what you're alluding to. Um, it's fun going through the airlines with, you know, I don't know, six, 700 cigars in a humidor. You go through there and they run it through the x-ray, right? And TSA says, what do you have in there? You go, cigars. Really? I'm like, Yeah, you wanna see? So you open up the humidor, right? And you can tell the guy likes cigars. And so you, uh, you ask him if he wants one, which by the way, TSA cannot accept anything. And I know this. So you got the humidor open. They see all these cigars, you go, hey, you want one? They're like, yeah, well, we can't accept gifts. And you just, I know, and shut the thing and lock it, right? Just to be just, you know, just for fun. Uh, kind of be a jerk, I guess. But I was at the gate on a Southwest Airlines flight. I was running late, so I was the last one to check in. I'm, you know, C-2000 to get on this plane, right? The last one. Plane was full. Uh, the attendant comes on, uh, the customer service agent comes on and says, we need the last whatever, C-20 back boarding to check your bags. I think I had 300 cigars in my bag at the time. And I have a soft side bag. So I went up to the front. My wife works for the airline, I kind of know how you're always respectful to customer service agent. Mm-hmm. So I go up to the lady and I said, I said, I apologize, ma'am, but I can't check my bag. And she says, well, why not? And I said, well, because I'm standing here for one at the window, watching your your luggage guys throw these bags onto the airplane, which is fine. I don't care. But I have approximately 300 cigars in a soft sided bag and they cannot be thrown underneath the plane. She goes, you have what? So, yeah, about three. Do you want to see? And she, of course, you know, she lights up and I said, do you like cigars? You know, my husband loves cigars. Said, oh, okay. What do you want to see? She goes, yes. I opened my suitcase and there's 300 cigars. Oh my goodness. I go, you want some take home for your husband? Yeah. So just so the listeners know, you can't give cash tips to that customer service agent. But if you're happy with their service, you can go provide them with a Starbucks, Starbucks gift card, uh, cigars, anything. You can bring them a gift. They can't take cash. So I give her five cigars. She goes, well, hold on a minute. And she calls the guy working the, the door, letting, you know, tell that people on. And she says, hey, will you escort Mr. Wells down to the plane? And uh, he's like, well, oh, yeah, sure. And so as we're, we're walking past, you know, you got all the handicap and the elderly and all that stuff, which, stop it, don't feel bad. They can't go in an exit row anyways. So I'm not taking a seat from somebody else, right? But we're going past these guys and he goes, can I ask, you know, basically like what you do? And I said, yeah, we we'll just, a cigar broker and so you know do cigars and he goes really I go you like cigars <laughs> he says, yeah i go you want a couple he goes yeah so i hand him a couple cigars now i have this man carrying my bag down the plank to get on the airplane gets me to my seat puts the bag in the overhead bin for me so i got i was the first one on the plane with full like first class service of the man carrying my bag and putting it above the thing with me
0: for cigars you've also gotten out of tickets for it
1: and with- all sorts of stuff yeah. always have cigars. I mean, I always, you know, I traveled out here to Colorado with a couple thousand, you know, it's my job, but you always have cigars. You just, you never know who likes cigars. More people than you know, love cigars. They don't admit it because they might be looked upon bad, but a lot of people love cigars and it brings so much happiness to people because cigars are such a relationship thing mm-hmm. and it opens up so many doors of conversations that if, if you allow it to. Mm-hmm. But if you just let people know you have cigars, it changes everything. It changes everything. It puts a smile on a face and, you know, if a cop pulls you over, I, I rarely get tickets knock on wood because a cop pulls me over, I can make them smile. And usually I don't get the ticket because, you know, they're used to having to get yelled at and, you know, piss off and writing this ticket. And I'm like, oh, sir, yeah, I know I was speeding. I apologize and, you know, crack a joke and they smile. And usually it's a warning. Cigars can do the same thing. Marvel or DC? Ooh. I think it's Marvel. I'm not a big movie guy, dude. I'm just, like, so focused. Yeah, I don't do sports. I don't do movies. I don't do all that stuff. Yeah.
0: Favorite food?
1: I love Hawaiian and Samoan food, Polynesian food. Ooh. Polynesian food is so good. You get a good, like, uh, you know, the good mac salad from there, you know, the katsu chicken, the... uh, uh, musubi you know spam wrapped in mm-hmm. rice and seaweed my wife makes it it's phenomenal subi awesome yeah oh my gosh yeah that or sushi dogs cats neither or both two cats two dogs 12 chickens <laughs> and a horse i forgot about the horse <laughs> how do you N- forget about a horse right <laughs> nickname growing up my nickname as a kid was Little Peanut, and which is ironic because now I'm Big B. Big B. So everybody calls me Big B uh, B, or cigar mechanic. What's one
0: unusual fact that few people know about you?
1: Few people know up till now that I lived in Samoa for two years and that I, I used to speak the language fluently. Really? Used to. So don't ask me to speak Samoa. Alofa iate is I love you. How about that? Favorite? Are you a reader? Not very much, no. Okay. Do you have a life scripture? I've always loved the, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you could be any animal, what would you be? A lion. Or a bear. Maybe a bear lion. (laughs) 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 Are you an early riser,
0: a night owl, or are you normal?
1: Um, Is there a normal? Uh, I believe I'm normal as a night person. Okay. Actually, I love it. My wife gets up at around 2.30 to get ready for work. It's about the time I'm usually getting ready to go to bed. And so I love it because she tells me about her previous day and it helps put me to sleep. <laughs> if you could live anywhere, where would you live? Samoa. 100% Ooh. Samoa. Ooh. Yep. Describe it. Uh, Samoa, it's, so there's American and Western. I grew up in Western. And so it's still um, villages. Um, I really took to the culture there. Uh, the, you're, you're somebody in the village next door to you gets married. You, give the, you, know, you present a gift to that village. The thing I love about it is you bring over your best pig, not your worst. You cook that pig. You take care of it, and it's your best that you give. Uh, when we went back there to get married, my Samoan father, the, the man that Lua, the, who I just found out has passed away, he offered me his home. Um, he offered me his home, which was right on the ocean, mm-hmm. which is a thatch roof hut, right? It's a concrete floor with, you know, pillars and a thatch roof hut. And he says, I'll give you my home and we'll, I'll build one on my plantation. And if you like that one better, when I'm done building, you can have that one. You can take your pick. That's just the type of people they are. Ooh. It's about neighborly. It's something that our, unfortunately, our world has let go mm. and needs desperately to have back.
0: Mm. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness?
1: God, that's a question you should ask somebody else. I don't know. My greatest strength has always been my words, uh, my ability to get along with anybody, to talk, to understand. I've always been able to just talk with anybody. My greatest weakness? That's an interesting question because it's changed so much in the last couple of years. My greatest weakness for the longest time was my lack of confidence in who I was. And I found so much strength in him that that has just gone away. And I feel like as long as I live for him that there is nothing that can't be accomplished through him. So I I think my greatest weakness is just the internal battle between the spirit and the flesh. And I feel like I'm getting stronger and stronger every day in recognizing that battle and allowing the spirit to win over the flesh on my daily decisions. Mm
0: -hmm. Who's been the greatest influence in your life?
1: Initially, I would say Zig Ziglar. Um, When everybody else is listening to Led Zeppelin and whatever else, I'm listening to Zig Ziglar growing up as a kid. I just remembered, you've got to have goals, uh, you know, and, and hearing him with that, uh, one of the phrases that was actually put up on the marquee at my junior high was, it's your attitude, not your aptitude that determines your altitude. Then that's always stuck with me. Um, and, I, and that man, that just goes so much to the spirit too. I don't care how much you know the Bible and how scholarly you are. What's your attitude towards your faith and how you practice that? That's what matters. I'm not a guy that can read and remember these things and just quote verses and pull all this stuff out from what I do. But I find myself speaking from what I've heard and from what I've read in the Bible and allowing God to work through me uh, just because of the attitude of
0: faith. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful?
1: Probably Jason. Jason's not rich. But He's wealthy. He's extremely wealthy in the spirit. He'd probably be my second most influential person in my life. Mm. I take that back, he's probably my most influential because he makes me cry. I feel like I owe that man my life Mm. because he gave me back my desire to be with Christ. He gave me back my family because of his example Um, and because of the man that he was. And he has his struggles and he has his battles. You know, it's interesting. He was my Paul, right? And we had a conversation a few months back, and he goes, man, it's interesting because you're my Paul now. And he feels like I'm guiding him Mm -hmm. in a way I've surpassed him in my walk, right? It's not a competition, but he feels like he's looking up to me now. But that man stuck with me when nobody else would Mm -hmm. and believed in me, man, and just kept praying for me silently, just knowing that one day there'd be this man of Christ, come out. So yeah, he's probably my most influence. If a man makes you cry, that's a man
0: that's influenced you. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And how has it contributed to your spiritual journey?
1: I don't know if you guys know, you and I talked about it, but Holy Smokes, um, it's interesting when we came down for, when Drew and I were out here that one time, and we, what was it called? The Conclave? The Conclave last year. And you guys welcomed us into your homes, it was just so powerful. We were going to go to one home, say hi to everybody, talk to Kay and get out. We ended up at three, um, drove through the night and it just didn't matter. We needed to get home, but it didn't matter how late we stayed because just the circle of men, um, was just so amazing. Um, I see all these broken hearts coming together as whole men and being, able to be there for each other. And through that got introduced to core. Um, the book that we now use for starting our groups through House of Rejects. Tim Um, Phillips. mm -hmm. Got introduced to him. And uh, it was interesting because we were talking about, you know, I'd been talking to Jason about developing this curriculum for us to get these groups started of men to plant these churches. And uh, Tim's telling me about the core. And I said, pause for a minute. Let me tell you what we're doing. And it was just, they came together together. And it was really cool because I said, you know, so how many books you need? I said, I need 12. And he reaches in a backpack and that's all he had. And he hands me 12 books. So, um, you know, people like Kay and just, just everybody I've gotten to meet, um, yourself, your story. Man, I look at the little battles I've gone through compared to what you've gone through and how I cursed Christ in those moments, feeling like he fled me when I had actually fled him. To see your strength in that is an inspiration. Thanks, bro. Yeah, thank you. If you could have a holy smoke with
0: any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name
1: Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Can we name anybody in the Bible? No. I... I, Zig Ziglar would definitely be one of them. Jeez, Abraham Lincoln would be another one. Ooh. Um, I've always loved the Lincoln debate. The the, the art of debating was really cool. I'd probably have to think about the last one. Because that's, uh, I don't want to cheese out and just go with three biblical people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't know, because I've, I've gotten to have just moments with so many great people. I'd have to think about that last one.
0: All right, last question. If we were to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of whatever it is that is good for celebrating, bottle of champagne or whatever what are we celebrating
1: I don't know There's a particular moment I think it's just celebrating life um, and I want for the rest of my life to be celebrating the freedom of hearts and souls of men I want to forever celebrate that mm. I think there's so many great moments in history but at the end of the day none of that matters What matters is the hearts and souls of men and women and their walks with God. Because I truly believe that I could live in a dumpster and have everything taken away from me that I hold as in this world as mine that really doesn't belong to me. Um, We're stewards of what's been given to us. So to see men's hearts just be freed and to be good stewards um, would be, I think, an excellent thing for us to just pop a cork and celebrate.
0: Brandon Wells, The Cigar Mechanic. Thanks
1: for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast, brother. Thank you, brother, man. Much love to you. Thank you so